clubhouse. Should I just pretend that isn't happening? Yes! Yes! That's what you do. You have to move on. Fuck. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Welcome to Tales from Yaya, the Your Honor podcast. Tonight we're talking about part three. It was written by Allison McDonald and directed by Edward Berger. So I'm lucky that last week I didn't put a blanket Peter Moffat wrote all the episodes because here we are, episode three, and Peter Moffat did not write this episode. <laughs> You're so lucky you hadn't said that. I was so lucky. Well, I was lucky that I <laughs> put on record. I will still say it each week. And there you go. It paid off. Well, so you technically said it this week, but you just said you added the not was not written by Peter Moffat. Well, that's true. That's only because I'm explaining for those that haven't yet caught up on last week's episode, though. Honestly, I don't know why you're listening to this week's episode if you haven't yet caught up on last week's episode. Get out of here, you guys. It's going to ruin things for you. Yaya's been spilling some tea. There's so many tales coming out of Yaya's food store, people (laughs) down in the lower ninth. You have no idea how people are talking, Mike, up in the yayas. We got stuff to say. We got people to meet. Ladies and gentlemen, let us talk about Gina Baxter, girlfriend coming in hot this episode. I mean, you said last week, Caroline, that you wanted to know more about the Baxter family business. We got the mama, the Pooh Bear mama coming in tonight. <laughs> Hardcore. She's serious. She is serious Frickin' business. I said frickin' frickin' business, it's Mike. Frickin'. I was gonna say freaking and fucking, and I said frickin'. So that's it. She's a, she's a frickin' crazy lady. But I love her. You know what? You know what? There's a saying about my parents. I'm scared of your dad, but I'm terrified of your mother. That is the key. Be terrified of the mother. She has like a full toolbox in this episode. From bribing the warden with the the money for the quote-unquote chapel renovation to the, that's my son, and that's my son. And then, you know, stepping up to the, the sheriff's, you know, deputies so she can, like, hug Carlo and whisper in his ear. And then her whole, like, let's go big, you know, statement that she gives. It's actually this scene right here. Let's listen to it. And where does it end? We go big. We go big once, and that ends it. I mean, Jimmy looks like the calm, cool, collected voice in this situation, in this episode. (laughs) He's just a grieving dad, honestly, at this point. He's not thinking about war, right? Yeah, I like the one, like, line he gets is when he's like, y'all have mothers, you have mothers, we all have mothers. That's like his that the, he's like, yeah, yeah. You know, you're in trouble when Jimmy Baxter's being the cool headed one, like the, the voice of reason. <laughs> like, you know, you're right? fucked. Like, that's end of day shit right there. Hey, so I know that like the main guy's called like the bully. What's the what's the little next one called? Like a like a what? What's the, the what's your little buddy who like stands around and goes like, yeah, yeah. What's that guy called? Like a sidekick? Maybe a lackey. Lackey, I'm not sure. A lackey, a sidekick, a cheerleader. But no, but come on now. De- definitely the Corleones don't have cheerleaders. Like there's got to be like the main dude and then there's like the dudes 
that are doing the yeah. Well, there's yeah. the there's the consigliere. He's like your counselor. You got your foot soldiers. You got your you know capos. You got your like shredder. Yeah, well that's yeah. You got your foot soldiers. You got your capo. You got your capo tutu capo. You know so what? What? That's a lot of it's, words. It's the capo tutu di capo. It's like the head of the head. You know, like the captain the captains kind of thing. There's like a whole like it's a whole like thing rank, a ranking system. Yeah. They don't know how Italian you are out there in podcast land. Yeah. Well, I mean, I have to check that. Uh, that may all come out depending on if I said it so super poorly wrong. It's been a while <laughs> since I watched Capo, but it's something like that. Because I, I always would think of like Tutti Frutti. So there's something about Capo and Tutti di Capo. So, yeah. Tutti di Capo. You insult my foot soldiers. They're just coming to collect their money. The shredder will not be pleased. Did they teach baby Italians to talk like that? Like, are, are they to be like, you say, you say, you say like this, say mom. You know what it is? We get so no, much dental it? work that we just forget uh-huh. to take the cotton out of our mouths after a while. It just becomes a way of life. <laughs> Only you can talk about your own self like this. I would never speak of your culture that way. I, I mean, it's, it's the rules. It's the rules. <laughs> Let's get back to Gina, sir, because this woman is on fire. She has got plans all day long and she is executing and you know what she don't need nobody by her side forget what a sidekick lackey cheerleader whatever she's fucking the boss and she's just doing it she's just got this done were you impressed with her plan and her execution to be clear when you say she's fucking the boss she's not actually i mean she's fucking a boss she is but fucking the, the boss and she is also she, the fucking she boss. is also the fucking boss yes, yes i knew yes, you're yes. gonna hit on that i knew you're gonna well it was just so it was just so well placed <laughs> so she's fucking the oh, boss and a boss right. in her own right that they're co-bosses yeah. she's one of those women who could wear the necklace that says i'm not bossy i'm the boss very beyonce vibes if we want to put it into like pop culture kind of reference but yeah i was super impressed with her what a what a great coming out party for her in this episode all the way from the beginning she's sitting in front of her mirror and she like straightens her collar and you know to reveal the cross and she's all pious she is on a game plan this entire episode the scene that we just played the we we go big we go big once and that ends it she's already put into motion at this point her plan she knew what she wanted to do she just needed to get jimmy and frankie on board with it and not really on board with it it was happening she walked away from her son's funeral to go talk to her other son jimmy had to like oh okay we're going over here now you know the priest was still giving his funeral mass and she like walks away over to to whisper in carlo's ear i loved it so much because you know these are the type of scenarios where normally you've got like the kind of the big guy and he's got the plan and then he just sends out his people like maybe he's telling her okay you got to go execute this right but no 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 this is clearly her deal like she is going and she is executing her own plan because when she's walking away from the actual burial area papa baxter doesn't look like he knows a hundred percent what she's going to say and what she's doing he's just being supportive you know (laughs) he's like you go boss lady yeah he doesn't he's not walking on her heels like he comes up to her when it's clear that there's some resistance with the sheriff's deputies you know letting her touch him but someone arranged for the department of corrections and the sheriff's deputy to hand off the prisoner the the prison transfer someone put that in the works you have to imagine she did it through the warden through the money she gave him you know it extended to more than just let carlo come to rocco's funeral there is a whole other step of here of putting carlo into the orleans parish prison so that he would be in the same place as kofi there are many steps there was 3d chess going on here i'm, I'm curious if people 
are going to catch, like, kind of that's what happened. And Michael, who's watching, that's why he freaks out, because he he realizes what's happening. So Carlo, and this is the scene in the beginning with uh, feisty Judge Sarah, who is saying Carlo is a racist and beat, you know, a member of the Desire Gang, you know, a teenager within the inch of his life, and calls out Gina in the room as being a proven liar. Sarah is feisty as fuck, and I appreciate that about her, but I don't know that I'm calling any members of the Baxter family proven liars, especially when they're sitting right there. You have to wonder that her safety is now in, in, uh, in jeopardy. Well, you know what? It will be intriguing to see if anything does happen with her because that will go to remember i i said to you i don't want to just hear that these people are dangerous i want to see action on the screen that they're dangerous i i saw moves very much that they're clearly can make things happen but i didn't actually see the outcome and so like visually on the screen not just be told about it not just guess about it but see it and so for me i'm actually looking forward to the baxters like i want to see the equivalent of the birdcage moment but like in a grander scale is that like morbid and gross of me it's not morbid and gross of you but here's the thing though smart criminals don't do moves though out in the open like that where you can see smart criminals who last a long time know how to keep themselves composed and they make their moves in the shadow and they use pawns to do their work for them. That's what I liked about this episode. That's what I liked about Gina stepping to the forefront and we actually get to see shit happen here, right? We're in episode three and there's finally action being taken from the Baxter's point of view on getting revenge for their son's death. It's finally in motion now. And then you have to think it's Gina the one is the one putting it in motion. The idea that they are so well connected that they can get a prisoner transferred from Angola. So Angola, if you don't know, is the Louisiana State Penitentiary. There are some fantastic nicknames for it. You, you want to hear a couple of the nicknames, Caroline? Please. Louisiana State Penitentiary, known as Angola, it's nicknamed as the Alcatraz of the South. It's also called the Angola Plantation or the Farm. It is the largest maximum security prison in the United States. Uh, it's a maximum security prison in the state of Louisiana. It is named Angola after the former plantation mansion that used to sit on the site where it sits now. Named after the African country, that was the origin of where many of the slaves were brought to Louisiana back in like the pre-Civil War times. So Angola is mm. nothing to sneeze about. So for them to have the pull to take from the worst criminals prison in Louisiana and move them to the county parish jail is power. That they could do that and they could do that within like a day's time. Those are moves that I appreciate. And I really like seeing that reach of them. What does Michael pretending to be in the public defender's office, what could he possibly do to counter that kind of power and that kind of reach? Michael has some hard hitters on his bench, thank God. I mean, he's got Lee, who I've got to say, turned out to be far more in the know than I thought she was going to be. I thought she was going to be a very capable lawyer and, and get in there and get into the whole thing and work a deal. But I did not expect her to be so knowledgeable about what goes on behind the scenes in the police department and the inmates. Let's talk about that, though, because I I agree. I was really impressed with her moves and her machinations and she knowing uh, knowing the system, knowing what happened without even having to really get Kofi to admit it, which he doesn't. She just knows the signs. She knows the system, which, again, goes to our conversation last week. What has she been through? What is the thing that Michael knows that she's been through that even still he's asking her to take this case you know, pro bono. I liked how she dealt with Kofi. 
I, I like not only that she knew the system and she knew exactly what happened to Kofi. I like that she knew how to talk to him. Some lawyers are very full of themselves and you know that they're very full of themselves, that they not only think they are the smartest person in the room, they will let you know that they are the smartest person in the room. They talk very condescending to everyone, certainly to clients where they're not going to get paid to represent them. It's not just a trope on TV and movies. It is it's a reality among a lot of lawyers. So I liked about Lee that she didn't act that way. She she tried talking to Kofi in a way of convincing him, I know you've probably been made promises of, of whatever for this plea. It's the only reason it makes sense for you to make this plea. But I'm telling you, there's another way here. I liked all that. Here's my concern, Caroline, and I want to know what your take on this is. Okay. She makes a very big bet on Kofi's life that by dangling the threat of a police brutality scandal in front of the DA, that the DA is going to drop the charges. A bet which pays off. What she doesn't take into account is the Baxter family aspect of this equation. Did that bother you at all? Like, she's kind of playing roulette with Kofi's life here in a way. Yeah, I think it was a gigantic oversight to think that it's everything that we were talking about at the beginning. Like maybe these are certain things that you do when you don't know who the victim was. But once you know who the victim was and like the weight that that carries, the impact, you have to really reexamine your game plan. And so that part, the idea that she thought that there's any chance that the Baxter family would be okay without someone being held accountable seems wildly off base. Yeah, and it's not like she can claim she didn't know about the Baxter involvement, because if she has any knowledge of this case at this point, which she has begun working on the case, you have to assume that she has done some basic level, the most basic level of investigation into this case. She has to know that the Baxter's involved. This is not like last week when she first came on the scene and didn't realize that it was Michael's dead wife's car that was involved. Like, okay, she literally just came on the scene. She she wouldn't know that yet. She's now working the case. She has to know the Baxter family is involved. And I think it's extremely short-sighted to think that, all right, you got the DA to blink, but that's the end of it? No, 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 no. Her math all works out so long as she she does ignore who the victim is completely. But the fa- and, and you can even play like a game like, well, she's just coming back in on the scene. So maybe she doesn't really understand how much to to put weight on the Baxter family. But the thing is, is that she she knows all the behind the scenes with the with the gangs and she knows all the behind the scenes when it comes to how the police handle their the urban myth yeah so then given all that how does she not know about the Baxter family and revenge and justice served they weighted her so heavy on the side of being so knowledgeable and then kind of just left that other part out let's talk about Kofi actually because i think the importance of Lee's oversight and Michael not managing her like Charlie said he needs to manage her. I mean, and Charlie, holy shit, like, you got to fuck her if you want to manage her. But <gasps> Yeah, but he, d- yeah, excuse me, though, he, uh, Michael took that advice. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think it required a lot of pushing. I got the impression that Michael was looking to sow some oats anyway. But yeah, he definitely took Charlie's advice. Uh, and we'll, let's get to Charlie. But let's stay with Kofi, though, because Kofi is the obviously the other side of this equation. He is in a tight spot because... As at the end of last episode, he's got Desire saying, listen, we've got you covered, but you need to play ball. You need to play ball here. You need to plead guilty, take the fall for this. Your family will be protected. But now he has Lee coming in here telling him, you may, you have options, you know, and without Desire, without his mama, without his siblings, like in his face, listening to Lee 
break down the injustice of the police black site, the gas in the car, all the things that have been ha- that have happened to him. You can see where it's an attractive thing. Like, maybe I don't have to take the fall for this. Maybe I don't have to get served up to Angola and be put on this road. Maybe the, maybe there is another choice here. The fact that he retains Lee, the fact that that conversation ha- you know happens, has all sorts of repercussions throughout this episode. Not only for Charlie and Rudy Cunningham, the the bad the crooked cop and little Mo who has to defend <laughs> Kofi. <laughs> there, I mean, there's all sorts of stuff here. There's all sorts of stuff here. I mean, Kofi's first night in jail. What did you think of the scene? It kind of opens the episode with the hit him, motherfucker, hit him. Ooh. He screams every night. You're his sale mate you gotta hit him really honestly the parallels of watching adam and kofi in those couple of scenes was really what captured my attention because they were doing the full-on here's adam taking pictures of you know the bruising on his chest here's adam like in his cozy home here's adam doing all these things here's kofi having to be and not only just in jail but having to deal with this insanely dysfunctional bizarro roommate situation where he has to be like slapping his roommate around and he's going to be like egged on by the other inmates like watching that life move forward in parallel was really most striking to me it really was we talked about a lot last week how both of these young men are 17 on the verge of turning 18 but living very different lives in very different places kofi in this horrible situation of having to literally having to deal with a screaming bunkmate in his jail cell and people yelling at him in the night to strike him so to make him shut up and then you have adam who is being allowed to indulge his most emo child of taking pictures of himself to speak his truth very stark different realities i i think the show is kind of brilliant to to cut it that way to edit it that way well i think it just it yeah home. i mean yeah Oh my God, I was just going to say it drives home exactly what we're, look at us sharing a brain. It drives home exactly what we talked about in the previous episode, which was just this whole amazing long-term picture of, you know, watch these 17 year olds watch how different, you know, life paths turn and twist in different ways, depending on your circumstances. And you know what's killer for me? What you want to say is Kofi's life could be changed so long as different people would have intervened, right? So if someone would have just intervened, if he had a better lawyer, he wouldn't be in such a bad spot. But the reality is Lee is supposedly a fantastic lawyer. And yet we know having Lee on his side isn't enough. And so there's something about that and the idea of like the justice system and then just sort of street justice in general or, you know, what happens out in the real world that is like extra unnerving because you think you could fix things. Like if you say, oh, well, if he just had better counsel, if he just had someone pulling strings and looking out for him, if he just had this, then his life could get back on a better path. But the circumstances surrounding his life, no, he really can't. Yeah, and I would argue that Lee Lee is a great attorney, and and I think this goes back to the conversation we were just having. I think Lee is a great attorney for one specific portion of his overall problem. I, I think he needs not only an attorney that can deal with the justice system, but an attorney that also can help him with, or someone that can help him with the street justice side of it, which... Which he has a little bit. He, I mean, there, Desire is in this jail. Desire is keeping an eye out for him. Let's talk about the bird dissection scene. Because we have, and I, I didn't catch his name. I, catch, I caught his associate Razim's name. But the gentleman who's dissecting the bird while he's talking to Kofi. I had to watch the scene a couple times to get what they were saying. But it was interesting, though. Because it was almost like a, you and I talk a lot about how people 
need mentors, right? A lot of having a mentor yes. is a very important thing that no one sits you down when you're younger and say, find yourself a mentor. It's going to make a big difference. You and I have had conversations on mic and off mic a lot about mentors and mentees in life. I find like this guy is almost not only his contact person inside the jail. He's kind of the conduit between little Mo on the outside and Kofi on the inside, but he's also kind of the jail mentor for Kofi in this episode. What did you think of the scene, the bizarre scene of watching him dissect a bird, but also kind of give advice to Kofi and talk to him normally about, about jail life. Ever since episode one, I've been kind of like searching for the Shawshank redemption connections and I'm going to keep watching for those. But this entire conversation had a real, vibe of red and andy and like a real like let me tell you like more than nuts and bolts of how things happen i i I know he's dissecting the bird and i know that that's all unnerving and i think to me it's supposed to represent just how far gone his mind kind of is and he's just sort of like doing these things that to most of us don't make any sense but that's kind of the point the life that this guy leads doesn't make any sense to the rest of us. Like we, you can't put it into some sense of normalcy. What he's doing makes sense in his little world. Uh, and it's very different than ours. So did you get that kind of like, there were several actually scenes in this episode that made me get that older red feeling from Shawshank to a younger Kofi, like Andy ish. You know, it, it, he came off to me as a little bit of red. That's Morgan Freeman's character, right? In, mm-hmm. in Charlie, but also, the, the the dissecting the bird actually reminded me of the old man who I feel like his name was Books. Yes. In, yeah. In, in, yeah. Who who eventually when he gets sprung kills himself because he can't deal with life on the outside. But remember he used to play with like the mice and rats in the prison. Yes. Like they yes. Were, yes. Like they were his friends. I felt like that's him. Him dissecting the bird, which he says he does like every Monday because that's when Razine cleans up like the yard and delivers some birds. I felt like it was a very similar thing to that. Like you said, his mind was gone. Like this is just like uh, like a hobby for him something to do it's something that i i mean it sounds odd but hobby's probably a good word like it's just it's something that is it is outside of the four walls of the prison you know i mean there's something there it's 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 something that actually had like life in it and it, like the little mouse you know like there's just this whole thing and you're right i mean i think that there's like a lot of these characters are kind of an amalgam of different ones like like brooks i think and red i think i don't know that anyone's going to fit neatly into these things but you're right it's that older more experienced prisoner who's losing it feel in case just for people who are out there the conversation that they're actually having again because it took me a couple of tries to figure it out he's talking to Kofi about if Kofi knows what prison he's going to go to. Now that he's done his plea deal, there will be sentencing, which relates to what Lee and Michael are talking about, that the DA is showing up at the sentencing the next morning, and that's where he's going to get the charges dropped, and and, uh, Kofi will be able to go home, which hopefully that happens uh anyway so because at this point though in the jail the the red character is asking him you know where he's gonna go he says i don't know yet so he mentions three prisons he mentions bb rayburn wade and angola those are all state prisons in louisiana in case you were wondering what they're talking about they he's he's trying to give kofi advice on what prison to expect to go to depending on how much jail time he gets and and the game of the prison system I thought that was kind of interesting. Again, just another, the guy knows the system. He knows what happens to people once they get processed through this way station of the Orleans Parish Prison. There were, there were these older 
men who kept being injected into the situation for Kofi. That just happened repeatedly in this episode. And every time I got that a little bit like there's someone looking out for you and a little bit like, let me tell you how this is actually going to go down. Let's stay on the mentor, though, because he's giving kind of advice, you know, desires here for you. But then remember, Kofi has that attempt on his life, which I give Kofi so much credit for realizing the security camera goes off. And he's he's street smart enough, even though you get the impression this is like largely his first time in jail of any kind of sort. He's street smart enough to know when the red light goes off on the video camera in the infirmary, bad shit's about to happen. And I like that. I like that it put him on notice that he was he was wise enough to realize that he should all of a sudden now be fearful for his life. Now, can I ask you, though? Would you do anything in that situation? Like, I I would start pushing the exam table against the wall. I know it's probably bolted down, but I'd be looking for anything to block that door. Is that like, that's not going to happen in prison, Caroline? Or is it like... I also would be looking to try and Jimmy, like, block the door somehow, put a chair underneath the handle, look for at least a lock on it, start screaming, see if there's a phone or something. Uh, you're right, though. There's probably – it's probably all locked down so those things can't happen because a chair can go through someone's face or through a window as easy as it could be used to block a door. Well, and also you could take the doctor hostage or something, right, if you did that. So obviously there's probably very few things to use. Right. So it's it's another interesting parallel, though, that as corrupt as the cops have been shown in this series so far, it's a sheriff's deputy that actually intercedes and, and has the wisdom enough to realize two big white dudes in this room with little Kofi is doesn't look right. And he breaks it up. So, again, it's another older gentleman kind of coming in, extending Kofi's life a bit. I like that whole scene because I got to tell you, I also had my blood pressure up. It was one of those scenes where I don't know. I don't know what contract deal Kofi has on your honor. I don't know how many episodes he's committed to be in at this point. Maybe this is where, you know, this is where it ends for him. I don't know. It was it was truly nerve wracking. Oh, no, I thought it was 100 percent over right then. And when he was saved by the by the sheriff's guard there, I to be honest with you, the way that the editing worked, it clipped back over to a scene with Michael that I was like, wait, what? Like, was that that was it? Like, he sent the two guys away. And then there was like a little like, hmm, don't do anything else. And then but then we cut away from him. And I was like, oh, my God, wait, what? What just happened? It was jarring for me the way we cut away. It was. It, w- it was, again, no nice editing, though, because it's Michael and Lee having their moon, their rooftop conversation about how the DA is going to let Kofi go in the morning. And now you're watching the scene play out and you have to be thinking, is Kofi going to make it to the morning? That becomes a real, real issue with the with the long arm of the Baxters now in, involved in the situation. Can I tell you, Mike, the second that the words Kofi's going to be released in the morning came out of Lee's mouth, I basically like looked at Alexa and was like, set the timer for 12 hours <laughs> because I was like, Shit. Yeah. like, all you have to do is make it through the night, and make it to morning. And I was just shaking in my boots like, please make it Kofi, please. Michael has the forethought to see what's going on at the funeral, which he's spying on runs books it to the public defender's office to call the jail to to get him into solitary all great but you don't go follow up you're a fucking judge you have sway you can go throw your weight around a little bit and make sure it's actually getting done how many times have you worked with customer service or with the government uh, caroline and and they've given a <laughs> promise that they're going to do something and does it happen 
most times it does not happen is my experience. Not on the first try anyway. No way. You have to be so tenacious with everything. You have to be like completely yelling at somebody to get something done. I, I, that whole scene you're talking about specifically the call to the prison. Yeah. Because that guy could not have been less. I mean, he pick, perks up when he hears Baxter, but otherwise was only concerned about his football game. Could not have given a shit about what this public defender was calling about. The only thing that I could think of is that he's having to play that game of being invested, but not look too invested. And that is the only reason why I let Michael off the hook on that. Because otherwise, I was like, come on. This is the... the um aggression that you ran back to the office with with like i mean amazing speed he was like right. the flash right. i mean he like took off and well, good on for a him, marathon. Though. i don't know if you heard i had heard i do give mad props to the fact that he read the situation for yeah, what it was me too. Me too. at the cemetery yay i think that most viewers didn't understand what was happening or what he was doing until he was making that phone call so really fantastic on that i, I can only say he can't look so fucking invested in the case. He has to keep pulling back. No one would be this invested in one in particular person. He has to lie like crazy to uh, for for Lee to allow him to appear this invested. Sure, but remember, he when he's calling from the public defender's office, he's not saying who he is. They the guy thinks still it's it a doesn't public... matter. No public defender is like laying their life on the line either. Do you know what I'm saying? Like uh, you still have to maintain some amount of just. Yeah, I mean, could you just do this? I'm doing my job, but not like, please, man, please, you know? Remember how he gets chewed out by his boss, Sarah, who must be the head judge magistrate at the beginning of the episode, about taking so long that all of New Orleans judges are being pegged for being inefficient with their time because Michael Desiato has a reputation for being overly involved and taking too long to get rid of his cases. So one, it's kind of on brand for Desiato when he gets involved in something to to labor it to death. Two, he also kind of how we had the rationalization last week we talked about it's my wife's anniversary kind of gives him carte blanche to be shady as fuck. The fact that his wife's car was involved in this crime also and being a judge, those two things together, I think actually gives him some leeway to continue to be involved in the case as it's, uh, you know, unraveling. So I don't think it would have been crazy for him to place a call and say, here, I heard from the public defender's office that, you know, Kofi was, you know, being asked to move to solitary. Did that happen? I don't know if you heard, my wife's car was the vehicle involved in this accident. So I'm just kind of keeping tabs on the case. I don't know. I don't think that would have come off as uh, that crazy for someone as invested in cases as Michael seems to be just as part of his normal life. But no, he's like, oof, that's taken care of. Time to go to Bone Town. Let's go get Lee drunk and fucker. Well, not go to Bone Town, but time to go manage that situation. They think Lee is beautiful. I and mean, you know, speaking of the mentor-mentee relationship, yeah. clearly they had that. You know, that he's crossing some lines in this whole situation. Oh, yeah. Not he's on, fucking with not the power dynamic. Not like our teacher sure. friend, right? Sure. There's a lot of that in this. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, he's abusing the power dynamic here. So they have a relationship, but I got the distinct impression that this is something that I don't know how much Michael has thought about it, but it definitely seemed like it was something Lee had thought about because she doesn't resist that kind of all at his advance. And again, it's not uncommon in that kind of mentor mentee relationship for those kinds of feelings to develop. It's high pressure situations, probably a lot of time alone together. You learn about the deepest, darkest parts of someone, which bonds you to that person. You see where it could all happen. I agree with you. There's definitely Charlie in his ear, though, of trying to manage the situation. 
Well, and you really got to keep her close. So, I mean, would you do this, Mike? Would you do Would you create a situation where you were having this an intimate relationship with someone just to kind of keep your keep your claws in them and like keep real close tabs? Because pillow talk could be like everything for this entire case. Just that afterglow chit chat could really make the difference of him having a lot of influence. I mean, I think we're well past the line of what I think I could or could not do at this point. I think Michael is doing a lot of things that I don't know I could have ever gotten to the point. Based on the Michael that we have seen and and the fact that Charlie takes him to task for what have you gotten me into? You're 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 not just fucking with your own life now. You're fucking with my life. You're fucking with my campaign. This is a felony. Uh, what am I doing for you? And Michael having to say, I've got it. I've got it all managed. I don't know that he does have it all managed there. I think he's managing certain parts of it. So I think this whole thing with Lee is strictly coming out of that conversation where Charlie puts him on the mat. Uh, He says, uh, you know, you need to be fucking her to manage her. And he goes, I've got it. I got all of it, Charlie. I think everything in this scene with Lee comes from that. I got it all. I got it all, Charlie. Like he's he doesn't want to do any more damage to really his best friend here. Isn't it remarkable, the pebble in the pond ripple effects that is going on here? I mean, we are down to affecting Charlie's, you know, mayoral race. We we are fucking with whether there's going to be a gang slash mafia war. Like all these things are happening from an inhaler falling on the floor and a boy reaching down and getting it. Like all of this is happening from the tiniest of moments. To say nothing of the gas station attendant, poor Leland Monroe, mm. getting manipulated at the top of the episode with Dylan <laughs> Thomas. Uh, that oh that whole bit about, uh, you know, do not go gentle into that good night. That whole thing with Dylan Thomas, that made me laugh. I, fuck, Michael Desiato, what an actor. I mean, he should get Brian Cranston to play him in a TV movie of this story <laughs> because he puts on the waterworks by my wife and the cheating and the, the credit cards and... Holy shit. What did you think of this? This is like some Mission Impossible spy level stuff here. Our friends at uh, Spy Hearts podcast, you know, would be interested, I think, in Michael uh, and then the work he's doing here. I agree with you wholeheartedly. This came up in Undoing because we had Nicole Kidman playing a character who has to go through all these emotions. I'm not going to give anything away, but essentially, you know, she is having to portray this woman who then should not probably have this level of acting skills as just a woman in the world. She shouldn't have Nicole Kidman level acting skills in front of all these people. And that's a little what I was thinking about her Dylan Thomas situation here. Yes, Michael Desiato is a smart man. He is a man who understands people and can get what he wants out of a majority of situations. But I thought for a moment, should Michael be as good of an actor as Brian Cranston is? Because he should be a little bit more hiccupy for me. Does that sound odd? It's like, is it weird when an actor portrays a person who's acting and they act as well as the actor does it? <laughs> A couple things to that. I, I, yes, I think we've seen Michael Desiato from the bench. We've seen him have a little bit of the theater, right? He gets down off the bench Fact. and he's doing this. Yes. So he, he has a Kenneth Branagh level, River of Ham level acting. That's <laughs> more, I mean, that's more like, uh, you know, Judge is going a little big here. This in the bar scene and then at the gas station, this is like fucking people win Emmys and Oscars for what he's doing here. To say nothing of the fact that how many people our age or a bit older than us would know how to 
erase surveillance camera footage without fucking it up the first time. Like his his ability to operate the the camera system, get the have the idea to take the picture of the license plate off of his phone, off of the camera screen, and then delete it after confirming about the there's no cloud other than God from Leland, uh, and then deleting the file. I mean, I'm pretty good with computers. I think I would probably would have had to click around a little bit to figure out how to permanently delete surveillance footage. Well, so then that's the thing. Like, so do we believe that Michael Desiato is a computer expert? And also, is that fantastic of an actor? He should have been poking around more. It should have been more clumsy. It would have been really funny if he was, like, watching this stuff, trying to click around and do it, and ultimately just poured, like, coffee on the hard drive or something. Like, because it's like, think of our our own aged parents and stuff, you know? Like, how many could really get through this and do it well? I also would have liked to see him sweat it out harder with Leland, you know, and be a little bit more fancy about the whole thing well, yeah more more anxious he's so smooth this is this is so well executed in the beginning it was almost like he hired brian cranston to play himself here in the bar uh and i agree with you i think and i, I think that's why it came that's i think that's why i brought it up is because it bumped a bit for me that he would be so smooth i don't doubt he would have the idea i think they've for sure shown us that judge michael desiato has the brains to realize I'm going to follow the gas station attendant. I'm going to try and convince him of a story so I can get to his surveillance camera and delete the footage and get the license plate. I believe all of those things, that he would have the idea to do it. The execution of the thing should have been a little more hiccupy, a little more rocky, like you're saying. You know, that's where it comes. Like, Wouldn't it have been hysterical to see him take like a cup of coffee and just pour it on the whole fucking hard drive? Like the CPU or whatever. Like, it's like he can't, he can't figure out how to do it. So he just like punches it or something, you know, like ruins it in some way. Can't figure it out. Right. So he like picks it up in, in the distress over his, and just like steals it, runs away or something. And is like, I have to destroy your computer (laughs) and like smashes it. Like, that seems a little bit more like, yeah. Like, what if he did? Cause the premise was supposed to be that his wife had. his wife was was cheating on him right and so if that was the thing like what if he just went into like a hulk rage and lost his shit on it because he saw something on it like that would be so much more believable than this surgeon precision elimination of certain files well that's see that so here's the thing right that seems like something believable someone would do but any computer person out there would say well, he can he can smash it, but it wouldn't actually unless he pours like, you know, acid or a, takes a magnet to the hard drive. You know, he's actually not going to damage the thing. But in the moment, you could see where a normal human being would think, oh, I've destroyed the I've destroyed the evidence. You know, it's not going to be usable anymore. But no, he actually does the thing you need to do to get the thing to be destroyed. We think we hope. I mean, Lord knows nothing has gone to plan thus far. But then on the same hand, it's also the same guy we're talking about who doesn't notice his fucking dog dragging away a bloody rag. So it's all or nothing with Michael. He's either like uh, on the mission. Yeah, he's either on the (laughs) impossible mission force or he's a bumbling (laughs) idiot from, you know, Malcolm in the Middle. Okay, okay. Back up a little bit. I would not say bumbling idiot. If I was cleaning up blood all over the interior of my car, I may not notice my pooch magooch grabbing something and running off. You know, dogs are buttholes like that, and they can just get into stuff. So I'm not going to say he's a total bumbling idiot. That whole scene, though, right, that he's cleaning the blood in the driveway without pulling it. We talked about this, that fact that he doesn't pull the car further up the driveway. There's blood everywhere. The, The fact that... 
the fact that you left the bloody rag on the ground for either the wind to blow it away or your dumb dog to come take it away, like, it's all or nothing. Like, there's no kind of middle ground with Michael. He either gets it perfectly right or, like, makes really kind of boneheaded mistakes that people wouldn't normally make. I see. That, that's kind of, like, my feeling right here. All of that being said, I loved the scene. I loved him with the Dylan Thomas thing, talking about, you know, the, the song Treaty with Leonard Cohen and talking about it. And just, I liked watching it. But when, after the episode was over and I'm taking my notes down, I'm like, I don't know. That, that seemed a little bit much for me. <laughs> I mean, there are moments in the show that you do have to suspend some amount of disbelief and be like, well, it's possible, I suppose, in all of the statistical outcomes that could have happened. I suppose it's possible that this is the way that it could have gone down. Now, I don't know that every single story owes it to us to tell the most probable story right? They don't necessarily, I mean, sometimes things happen and twist and turn in a story. And I'm, I kind of want to highlight that statement because I feel like I know that this series has gotten kind of some guff, you know, out there in the, in the critics world. I feel like people are coming at it with this eye, like every single story is required to tell me the most probable, the most likely series of events. And if things get really hinky, then I'm going to start calling bullshit that things can't happen this or that or this or that. Right. But come on now, isn't that the point of telling a story that is worth listening or watching where things do take a hinky turn and you didn't expect it? Otherwise, wouldn't every mystery and thriller be like the most boring, predictable story ever? Right, because nine times out of ten, the person you think did the crime did the crime. So, right. yeah, I mean, dramatic television needs to have twists and turns. And and here's the thing, and I want to be and very clear unlikely, on this. unlikely, unlikely twists and turns, which is key, right? right? It's key. The big twist is is what makes people stay tuned. It's the fifth act cliffhanger, the the thing right before credits roll, that that twist, the, the, the person in the shower, it was a dream all along, you know, all of that. All unlikely, but it's what makes you count the minutes until the next episode starts. So here's the thing, and I want to be really clear about this. Everything I just said was, uh, was made me bump a little bit all came after the episode was done, and I'm putting my notes together to come talk about it here with you. In the moment, I was like, fuck, yeah, I love this scene. I love watching him be all spy. I love watching him be this... The, this like smooth person who can execute this plan i was in it i did not bump on it until i thought about it later on i was like you know that really was a moving acting <laughs> performance that he did there so i was in it i was bought in during it and that's what makes good television like this and is i'm a okay with it i'm okay with it this is a 57 minute episode of television that did not feel like 57 minutes to me that's a mark of a good drama. It goes fast. You look down at the clock, you'd be like, oh, shit, we've been here an hour already. You don't even know that it's taken to episode three of us podcasting about it for me really to embrace that whole, I'm kind of sick of this whole critical biz of like everything just has to be so, well, that's likely to have happened. I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of bothering me, Mike. I'm having a little bit of a moment. Like I kind of need to journal about it. Well, you know, let's journal about it because this is the second show in a row now where this has actually come up as a criticism because it did come up in the undoing it did. There, there were many parts of the undoing that seemed very faithful to reality a lot of the way the court system played out uh, a lot of the the new york city interaction the the distances of buildings and people can take weird walks in the middle of the night and you know all of that <laughs> and but then there were things that like departed from that would never actually happen the person that, would that are statistically improbable yes yes the the you're dealing with things that occur that i only have like the point zero 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 
0.0097% chance of occurring kind of thing. And people get annoyed with that. And I and I kind of want to talk to those people and say, what is it that you're looking for in storytelling, if not for those moments that surprise you or that makes a story unique? Because otherwise, why wouldn't every single story be exactly the same? Well, I think what they're looking for is a show called 48 Out, the first 48, or your 11 o'clock news or unsolved <laughs> mysteries. Even I the think. 11 o'clock news has got some shit on it. Like I read the news story this morning where French schools closed the doors at like 8.30. And so the parents were throwing the kids over the fence when they were late rather than waiting till 10 o'clock when they could come for the tardy belt. Like that is a statistically improbable thing to happen that a parent would throw a kid over the fence. But that's what made the news story interesting. When people shake their head and they say, truth is stranger than fiction. The weirdest things happen and you don't expect it. It's the same reason people bet on underdogs to win at sports matches in, in any kind of sports game. Because if the if the better team won, every, if the better team on paper won every single time, no one would watch sports because you would know how it was going to end. Weird shit happens. Unpredictable things happen. You read the crime blotter, I guess, if you don't want any surprises that depart from the statistically uh, majority thing happening from time to time. I'm here for your honor. That being said, Caroline, when yes. you were younger and in your school days, did your parents go to your parent-teacher conferences? Yes. Did they talk about your performance in class and school and your skills at this subject or that subject? Uh, one can only assume yes. Did your father frequently ask your teachers if you were dating anyone? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> Statistically improbable. <laughs> I am a father of a son. I've yet, to ask, I've yet to ask a teacher, my son's teacher, about the intricacies of my son's personal life or his dating life. I mean, granted, he's 12, but still, I don't foresee me doing that at any particular time. Let me tell you how they could have just tweaked that a little bit, and I wouldn't have had any problem with it. All Michael had to, to do is rephrase that question in a way that seemed far less pointed. If he just said... Is he socializing with his with his peers okay? Does he seem to be get along with others? Like, I'm a little worried because I know, you know, other people his age are, pro are probably dating and stuff. Like, does it seem like he's doing what everyone else is doing? Because I'm just really worried whether he's socially doing okay and emotionally doing okay. You could have said it like that. That's fine. The way that he just bluntly was like, is he dating anyone? Who? No. What? Come on. What was the last time my son ejaculated? Do you know this information? <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, he could have handled it. Even if he wanted to specifically bring up the dating thing, because maybe he suspected a teacher would know. And I think often teachers do know students that are dating other students because they have eyes and they're in, they're watching their class and they're observing things. I, I don't think it's, uh, I don't think it's an unlikely source of information, but I think it's a really blunt way of asking it. I probably, if this is something I needed to know and I wanted the teacher to tell me, I would have been like, does he seem distracted to you yes he does seem distracted to me huh i wonder i wonder if there's anything going on i mean he hasn't mentioned a new girlfriend to me but maybe maybe there's something going on with that and then you try and judge the body language response of your teacher you know especially a lawyer or a judge they're all about reading people's body language you know if you put a question there you don't have to hit her over the head with a stick you're gonna there's gonna be some kind of body language response there that you can gleam an answer from can you imagine adam sitting there next to him like, we just had parent-teacher conferences for Tom, and Tom actually was on the parent-teacher conference. So it was a parent-teacher-student conference. Could you imagine me asking his teacher, be like, is my son dating anyone? What my son would have done had he been there? Every son and every daughter would sink into the floor and want to die on the spot. Why did he ask such a specific 
question. What exactly was he trying to do? Especially for our, you know, fellow watchers who may not pick this up. Okay, I'm going to throw this out. I feel like he's just trying to identify anyone he's close to that he's probable to tell what happened. I think that's right. I think I think he's fully in cover Adam and Mai's ass mode here. I think it was strictly about trying to identify people he's close to that make him vulnerable to. I think the reason he ends up showing so much attention to Franny in this episode is because he realizes that Adam and her, and the reason he talks to Adam about her later on is, again, he's trying to gauge how much are you going to share with this teacher? This teacher who is not Mrs. Latimer is Franny. How much are you telling this woman? Because you seem awfully close. You have this skill. She's praising your photography skills. Your mother would be proud. You've stepped in. She, he says uh, He says to Adam, uh, you know, he says to her, you stepped in when my, when my wife passed away. Ugh. I'm fucking Oedipus is calling. Holy shit. <laughs> I did think that it was a clever storytelling device to have the origin story of the teacher and Adam be revealed through this conversation because now we know we know exactly what happened lost his mom she stepped in started comforting friendship turned to something more we got all that in that pretty good that's pretty good because we didn't really know how this all went down i was actually shocked at how cool the teacher played it when she said the line like something like did he mention who he was dating because if he didn't then i you know, it's not my place to say anything. That was so smooth that I was like, uh, most teachers would be like, Mr. Desiado, <laughs> you know, like, I don't even think they'd have like a, a coherent thought of how to respond to that. Even if they weren't the one actually dating the student, uh, which again, she has to be very comfortable with the situation that she's able to be, have a spotlight put on her inadvertently. Cause I don't, I don't think he suspects that she's the one dating uh, her son, but I think he recognizes Franny as someone that Adam likes and is close to. So I think he is on the radar because of that, uh, it, which made me even wonder if this was actually regular parent teacher conference. I had this thought, was this even regular parent teacher conference or did Michael make a specific arrangement to meet her to talk about Adam's current state of mind? I thought that it was probably not a regular parent teacher yeah, conference like i think he was of, yeah. yeah so here's the thing i mean he is really risking this whole again looking overly unnaturally interested in something in, in in a situation here does that make sense like 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 when you're making appointments that don't coincide with the normal time you have parent teacher conferences like you're ringing bells you know like it's like why were you in there talking what why are you asking questions about adam like everything looks out of place and that's not what you want. You want everything to look like, oh, no, we're just going about life as smooth as fucking possible. I think so, but only to the extent because you and I actually know Adam's involvement. I think from the majority of people, no one is putting Adam and Rocco Baxter together. So I don't know how suspicious it looks to everyone in these isolated incidences, because I don't think there's been enough of them to create a vast pattern of irregular behavior. And no one is making a connection. It's not like people are sniffing around to Adam and Michael as being other people of memory. They've got Kofi. Like, this is case closed for the majority of people. So I don't know how irregular it looks because no one's making the connection. Does that make sense? Like, we're finding it odd behavior because we know what he's doing. We know he's Well, how many times up. have you called a meeting with a teacher outside of the parent-teacher conference? 
it's come up around uh, it's come up around um traumatic things a grandparent passes sure, away but that's the point right well, so we just had the anniversary saying, of his mother's death though so maybe we can hide it maybe we can hide it. but i'm saying like it is a highlighted part though right it doesn't go sure. unnoticed when you go outside of the bounds of the normal parent teacher time so i'm just i'm just coming at it from a teacher point of view and just saying that it sticks out. And if you are going to, if you're worried about people going around talking to people closest to yourself or your kid, what they might say and what's out there, then this is an abnormal pattern here. Sure. I think Michael lucks out in this very specific instance, uh, instance with this teacher, because this teacher, Franny, is going to take your father came to see me, thinks you're distracted, is asking questions about why you're distracted, not because of well, maybe by the end of the episode, that's what she's thinking. But I think prior to that, she's swallowing hard because he is worried. He's seeing Adam be distracted. She's acting in a way that she knows is illegal. So she's probably more worried about her own self being exposed than the motivations of Michael acting odd. You know what I mean? So in this specific case... The fact that he's calling a meeting and using the cover of does Adam seem distracted? Franny is going to interpret, fuck, he's acting distracted because I'm a teacher boning my student. That's wrong and illegal. That's and it's fucking with Adam's head. It's making him act weird such that his dad is noticing. Not picking up on the fact or not thinking about the fact that, you know, Adam killed someone. Uh, right. His father's covering it up and that's why he's acting distracted. But let's get into that because were you surprised at that entire scene with Adam and Franny? Oh, uh, yeah, no. No, I mean <laughs> Yeah, no. no, no. We said it in the last one, right? Like, no way is he not telling Franny what he did. Like, no he way. absolutely is going to go fucking spill the beanos. He was having such an such an episode, Mike. This was such yeah. an episode. I, I, I wanted to save him for last for that exact reason, because he was having such an episode. This he was is having a, a very, what is it? A no good, very bad, horrible day. But why, though? Why is he taking pictures of his bruised body and his sneakers? Why is he photographing all of the evidence that he can get his hands on? Why is he out in the middle of the night taking pictures of the street that is still dirty at the death yeah, intersection? Bloody. Why is he holding a camera up to the haunting desire truck of death that could have easily run him down? Why is he developing the film in the dark room? Which, I mean, that being said, I love the Joy Division song that they use there. Oh, my gosh. And the entire, like, the mental state being, like, acted out in this, like, interpretive dance slash breakdown. All in his brain. Like, but, yeah. like, freeing yeah. himself, but also falling apart at the same time. Yeah. I mean, the song is, like, level terrace apart again. Yeah. I, the, the metaphor of it all, but then it coming back, which you know because his, his, well, on top of the trippy lights, but his arm is fine, right? His shoulder is fine, and then it comes back, and it's just a dark room, and he's all messed up again. All the way to him telling Franny, and Franny, as soon as he starts to tell her, Franny's like, don't tell me! I don't want to know! You can't tell me! And then she's like, I mean, Adam is having this, like, I don't know if it's excising his demons. Why is he doing this? What is he thinking about in this episode, Caroline? I think that when he says to Michael, like, why are you acting like this didn't happen? I kind of feel like it's a little like the mental state people are feeling right now with COVID times and that surreal feeling like, is my life actually happening? Are things actually happening in the world? Because I feel kind of floaty and out of my body. That's been talked about so much right now all over Twitter. I feel like that's what's going on with Adam. I think he's taking the photographs. He's making these really concrete 
memories, if you will, with the photographs and then like actually physically walking through the spaces again in a way that's like, this is real. This really happened. I think it's like a mental check. Like everyone around me is acting like this isn't a thing. And I, it's making me go crazy. I think it's a little bit of trying to excise his guilt and excise his demons, almost like he's trying to do penance. And related to that is it's not necessarily a full on death wish, but I think there's a little bit of him that feels like if that car runs him down, well, that's karma. I, I, I think he's I, at a, a point, thousand percent. I the think, moment of him yeah. standing and really, but, but also but not like, flinching. And this is like confronting his demons, right? Yes. Like truly yes. confronting them, like staring them down. Because had he not run that day, that accident doesn't happen. So it's a little bit like going back and reliving it. And like, what if instead of running from that SUV and those guys, what if I stood my ground? Right in front of Yaya's. What would the tale be then? The linchpin of all of Adam's behavior in this episode is in the conversation that we played at the very top of this episode. It's the conversation with him and his father in the kitchen. He says, you're not listening to me, he says to Michael. And that's what I think a lot of this is about is you're not you're not listening to me. You're not tell you're not listening to me tell you I need to have some consequences for what I've done. There needs to be some karma balancing for what I've done. And I think everything he's doing in this episode is him trying to not only walk through it and remind himself that this actually is the thing that's real, not the bullshit stuff that my father is building. That not, well, not the doing new... the whole today is yesterday right. and all that's that not stuff. Real. Right. Yeah. I really hit this kid. I really busted up my chest and my shoulder. I really have blood on my sneakers. I really left a mess at this crime scene. And I think the reason he tells Franny, which, again, no surprise, the reason he, he, he shouts at his father that the reason he's feeling so much that Rocco's funeral is tomorrow. And so for everyone else, it'll be a normal Saturday. But it's not a normal Saturday. A guy is dead. A guy has left the earth because of me. Uh, Adam is really feeling that. And Michael is not appreciating the toll it's taking on his son. He's not listening to him. He's not seeing his son He's so busy covering up his son's crime and now his crimes, he's not appreciating the pain his son is actually in. Oh, and going to the, the penitentiary and taking prisons outside the OPP and giving his name. He uses his real name. He says, it's my father is the judge. I'm taking yeah. pictures of illegally taking pictures of this prison. Like, yeah, and I know it's illegal and I know what I'm doing. But you know he what? Wants I guess that was... He wants to get caught. That was such a beautiful parallel moment where you have Kofi inside being treated the way he is. And then you have Adam on the outside and the guard really literally is like, that's illegal. And he's like, yeah, I know. And he's like, okay, don't do it again now. Right. Because, right. And what's the difference? What's the difference? Right. Kofi has to worry about beating his bunkmates and getting killed in jail. You know, and Adam gets this, this like slap on the wrist. Not it's, even a slap on the wrist. He literally was like, okay, you toddle off. Like, it was just nothing. And, I, and I'd and i raise to you, Caroline, there's another great parallel. Because remember, when we talked last week about the, all of these men were 17, Rocco, also 17. It wasn't lost on me that the next morning, that normal Saturday for everyone except for the Baxter family who have to go bury their son, Michael is at the funeral staking it out. Rocco is in a casket about to be lowered in the ground. Where is Adam? Adam is having a normal Saturday. He's putting pills in Django's banana, which is what he was doing the morning that he killed Rocco. It was a normal Saturday for Adam. For after all of his machinations, after all of his gnashing of his teeth, 
it was a normal Saturday for him. Rocco's then, dead. Adam is putting medicine for his dog in a banana. And they went through the through the the trouble of actually showing it to us, which is key in the show. I that is the one thing that I want more of. I want to be shown more as we're moving forward we we often talk about what's our next predictions and what do we want to see more of and whatnot this part i really want to see see it on the screen not talk about it how much did your heart drop when you when michael walks in the house and we hear nancy's voice and then she's fingerprinting adam at the table and adam almost seems not giddy but almost seems almost a little, a, a little gleeful <laughs> about the fact that he's being fingerprinted as my, as all of the blood drains away from Michael's face. I was really so shocked to see her there. I didn't think that she would do anything without texting or calling Michael. I mean, she's coming to his house. It seems odd with the relationship that they have that she wouldn't give him a heads up just to make sure they're home for God's sake, you know? Yeah. So it made me kind of almost wonder, like, did Adam contact her? Well, I think that didn't they talk about the fact that she would swing by at another time? I, sure, I got the impression that they were you, close enough. Do you do that without letting people know you're coming just to make sure they're home? Not not in a bad way, but just like, are you around? Well, maybe in the same way that she was that she felt comfortable leaving a message for Michael with Adam that Kofi Jones had been arrested for the crime. Maybe she calls the house and said, I'm going to come by. Let me make sure you let your dad know. And Adam just, for you know, quote unquote, forgot to let his dad know that she was going to come by there. Because Adam, Adam is feeling it himself, but Adam is also kind of pissed at his dad. It, again, not listening to him, doing all these things without Adam wanting them to be done necessarily. Maybe she did call and the message didn't get beyond Adam. That didn't bother me so much because she seems, again, blissfully unaware, even with his confession about lying to the cop about not driving his mother's car. She does like the whole hands, the handcuff bit and stuff. But there's no aspect of her that is like, y'all two are shady as fuck. And I'm going to start investigating your stories. I feel like that has to come at some point, but I don't feel it's coming now. Well, and she's just really quick to explain away anything that's odd. You know, it's just like, oh, well, you bird, you know, that kind of thing. Like, it's just it's just very like without consequences. Anything that's happening for Michael and Adam is without consequences, no matter how they behave. And with Kofi on the flip, everything is having con consequences. No matter what he's doing, he can't stop getting having all these consequences and adam wanting and adam wanting desperately for there to be consequences and they're like what does he have to do like he confesses to his lover he goes to the prison he yeah. uh he he he's, goes he's to the baiting michael all day long he literally does everything what does the guy have to do to have some consequences for killing someone <laughs> uh so i think that actually is a great segue to the end of the episode what is your feeling about Kofi? They come, they come for you at night kind of thing. Led down that long, dark hallway to Carlo Baxter's room. Um, Kofi Jones. That's where the episode ends. Caroline, what is going to happen to Kofi here? What is your prediction? That is so hard because I think that, you know, the obvious choice is Carlo kills Kofi. The end. You know, that's that is the most statistically probable choice, right? Gina has given the directive and Carlo is there. Everyone's in place let it commence right there will be no sheriff's deputy coming to rescue Stepping him at this, in point. this time yeah. but but does it feel like that does it feel like that's what's really going to happen the way that they left us on the cliffhanger and everything does it feel that way it, it doesn't because it seems like it's the obvious thing that happens kofi kofi is is going to it seems like kofi has 
you know, made peace Resigned with God. Resigned himself, yeah. Right, because remember, remember the mentors. I don't, we started talking about this, and then we got we got on something else. So mentor guy, he's talking about in the in the aftermath of the guys coming for him at the infirmary. Mentor guy is talking to him about how there's all sorts of juice in the world. Uh, some of that, amongst that, is Baxter juice, and y'all can't fuck with Baxter juice. There's nothing Desire can do. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing anyone can do to stop Baxter Juice. Calling it Baxter Juice is like too much. I think that's what he says. I think he calls <laughs> no, it No, no, no. He does. No, 100% calls it Baxter Juice. I'm laughing at the writers. Like, Baxter Juice? Like, some of it that down on paper, and everyone else in the room was like, yes, let's call it Baxter it Juice. Se- it seemed like some homespun wisdom. Like... You know, there's all sorts of kind of juice in the world and you got that Baxter juice and you can't fight against that. I feel like that statement makes Kofi kind of take a deep breath, put his chest out and kind of resign to whatever is going to happen is going to happen. But I can't run from this. That that was kind of my feeling. That's how the episode ended for me was Kofi. Kofi didn't kick and scream. He didn't force them to drag him by his hair down the thing. He manned up. He took a deep breath. He stood, put his back straight, walked down there like a fucking man, stood in Carlo Baxter's cell and said, I'm Kofi Jones. The only thing he didn't say was, I'm the one who killed your brother, bitch. I I 100% actually thought he was going to say, and I'm the one that killed Rocco Baxter. Here's here's the thing that I think was 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 very well done. You have Adam begging for consequences the entire time and you have Michael doing everything he can. Basically the the essential kicking and screaming don't take us down, right? And then you have Kofi who has all this wisdom passed down to him about what is going to happen and what is likely to happen and what you need to do and he does decide to walk forward and take this punishment, take this consequence that is solely unjust. But the juxtaposition of these two guys, of Adam being held by his illegal teacher love over here and Kofi stepping up and taking whatever is going to happen from Carlo. I mean, wow. Talk about just two distinctly different ends of the road of the journey here two houses alike in stature but not alike fucking really at all that being said to answer answer my question that you answered and then answered and questioned me about uh i think the (laughs) obvious is carlo's like thank you for delivering yourself to me stabby 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 because that's what his mother's and i get the impression carlo and rocco and fia do what gina says to do you know, and if the order is you fucking kill this guy, we're going to war with desire. So let me ask you, though, this is only episode three. If Kofi is dead and the Baxters feel that they have they have done vengeance here and, and justice has been served, it's episode three. I mean, this has to get more complicated. Now, I, I don't want Kofi to die. It 100 percent feels like Kofi is going to die. But also, then how does the story continue to move forward? Right. So a couple things on that. One is I agree with you. I, I feel like Kofi has more of a story to tell. I want to see it's not even that Kofi necessarily has a story to tell. I'd like to see Kofi stick around, if nothing else, because I want to see the story to continue to play out through his point of view. But I think if Kofi gets killed, it will. How does the story continue? Well, I think Lee then, it allows Lee then to become Kofi's advocate and avatar. A man imprisoned and, and falsely accused, the victim of police brutality, killed on the prison's watch. You know, it gives her, uh, it gives her a role to then come and become a thorn for Michael's side. Become, you know, where then there's, there's some good dramatic tension there, right? Where the mentee begins digging into the investigation that the mentor desperately wants her just to drop, right? Because right. in a lot of ways, Kofi dying makes everyone's life better. 
It makes Charlie better. It makes well, it little kind of closes better. the case, it right? It closes the case. There's no reason to continue to look into this anymore. There's no reason for Nancy to continue taking witness statements. Mm-mm. You know, the uh, not to mention the fingerprinting. We talked a lot about last week how Adam is not in the system, so probably doesn't have to worry about the Baxters ever getting police records on fingerprints and stuff like that. Uh, Nancy's about to put him in the system, She's y'all. About to put him in the system by by eliminating his prints. But yeah, I think Kofi dying actually like takes the pressure off a lot of people in this story. It closes the case. It seals up a loose end that Charlie, Little Mo, so Rudy, Michael, Adam, all, well, not Adam, but everyone else wants cl- closed up. But I don't think Lee, who has now invested herself in this case, who now thinks that she's doing this at the behest of her mentor, who she's also macking on now, is going to just drop that case. If Kofi winds up dead on the prison's watch, doesn't that only add fire to her police brutality concept that we're not even our inmates aren't even safe in jails while they're awaiting justice i i like where you're going with it it's it's just so unusual for a thriller suspense type situation to build a good amount of suspense and then sort of like deflate that balloon and then pick it up with a new character to build it build it again um so and so this is an unusual way to do it but i can see where you're going with it and i agree i think it would be interesting then to have him have to face off to lee look at her in her eyes and tell her these lies for sure which he really hasn't had to tell her too too much right because he set up the story with really its basic like fragile framework and is just kind of watching it play out he's not really he's not really adding a lot of story in detail to lee at this point we're talking about michael michael's really just now at this point taking information that lee is giving him to try and figure out where everything sits right he's not actually having to confront her or really lie to her actively too too much that's going to change if she begins to run down this case in memory of kofi it's gonna be interesting but that being said i hope kofi is not gone because i like him i like the actor i like his story i like the character i want to see more of him and i like the parallels between him and adam i like how yeah. the show is showing losing us the that so early feels wrong you know it feels like we need to continue to watch his story unfold and maybe that's the tragedy mike is that the kofis of the world stories end at 17 and they don't get to continue. It'll make all those statistically probable people feel really good, though, that that's how it ends, right? <laughs> oh, God, that's terrible. Terrible. But you're right. I mean, it, but it, it's it's terribly sad and does make it an extremely tragic story. But fascinating to need to continue on for a lot of more episodes. So I'm looking forward to talking about this with you because I'm going to need someone for, for my journaling. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we, we, we have worries and we have anxieties and I'm, yeah, I'm about to go do. develop. I'm about to go take some pictures of myself and develop them in a dark room and listen to some Joy Division for sure. You are going to do that? I you're am going to do circles. that. I'm probably going to listen to some Joy Division though. Listening to that new wave bop. When it, as soon as it started, I was like, oh yeah, I'm feeling this. I'm feeling this, Adam. <laughs> I love it. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Thank you for listening to Tales from Yaya's, the Your Honor podcast. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Tales from Yaya's at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you very much for listening. Talk to you next week. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.